0: but at the end of the day, we're all unique individuals and we undergo different stresses. We uh, have different genetics. We only understand some small fraction of how our genetics impact our nutrition and we don't actually know what's in our food. So like you can enter all your food into a chronometer or something and track your nutrition, but not only do you not know how you as an individual line up to the RDA and your needs, so it might tell you, oh, you're getting 100% of the RDA of X. You might need more than that. You might need less than that. But also, what's in your food might be different.
1: You are just listening to Chris Master John. What's up, my friend? And welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, health and fitness expert, Ted Rice. And you're listening to the show that helps high achievers get more energy, feel more focused, so that they can go after what is truly important to them in life. Before I tell you more about today's guest, I just want to congratulate everybody who joined this round of Legendary Lean. And if you're listening for the first time, Legendary Lean is my body transformation or lifestyle transformation coaching group where we help you, yes, lose weight, lose fat, build muscle, get toned, tightened up in all the right places, but we do it in a way that helps you maintain it afterwards because we're really about health transformation. The body transformation, it's because of the new healthy habits. So I wanna congratulate everyone who joined. And by the way, if you missed out, you missed out big because next time we launch our program, the price is going up because now we have so many testimonials, so many people saying good things about it the results speak for themselves and the results are worth way more than what we've been charging. So, congratulations to all the new members and remember, Legendary Lean is gonna be open in another three months and you'll have a new opportunity. We've got people who've lost 40 pounds in three months, 25 pounds in three months, 20 pounds in three months. We have a bunch of people actually who lost 20 pounds three months. If you are willing to do the work, this program works For 100% of the people who apply at 100% and that's all I got to say about that. So if you're looking for a program that works next time, pay attention, join up, don't miss out. Let's talk about Chris Masterjohn. So he's one of my favorite people to learn from. He is like a genius when it comes to nutrition. And I know you think you know a lot of people who are like that, but I'm telling you a lot of people have a good game. They talk a good game, but they aren't as knowledgeable as you think. And you'll see exactly what I mean when we get into the interview with Chris Masterjohn. Because we start off talking about why I have him on the show, why I reached out to him. And I follow him on Facebook. He put up something that was just brilliant, talking about the divide between the people who believe that you need meta-analyses and systematic reviews of 100 randomized controlled trials before you say anything about nutrition and so on. And then on the other side, you have people, say, on the ancestral health slash paleo side who are just like, well, if cavemen did it, then it's got to be good for you, too. And that's not exactly very scientific or a way that we want to live our lives, especially when those guys were dying from infectious diseases because they didn't have things like antibiotics. So Chris and I also dive into genetics and nutrition, the relationship there, and how to really tell if you have a nutritional deficiency. And this, my friends, is super controversial. I've asked so many experts on this, but I've got the best answer from Chris ever. In fact, he's the guy that I trust when it comes to talking about, okay, how do we assess our nutritional status? How do we see if we're lacking something? And how do we fix it Once we figure out we do have a nutritional deficiency, you're going to learn all that and more in today's episode. I know you're going to love it. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Dr. Chris Masterjohn. Chris Masterjohn, thanks for coming on the show, man. Really excited to speak with you today. Thanks for having me, Ted. It's great to be here. Yeah. And uh, before we hopped on, I was just talking about what maybe reach out to you. I've been following you for a while now, but you had this post about detoxification, and someone had made a meme talking about detoxification and liver. And if you have a liver, then you don't need a detoxification supplement. And you made a very important observation about that. And what I love about you is that you aren't part of, you're part of the critical thinking tribe instead of the, oh, evidence-based and which I love evidence-based, I love things based on science, but yeah. if, uh, you don't get sucked into those dogma discussions, those those discussions that, that really have more to do with tribalism and, and in that case, authoritarianism than, you know, really evaluating what's going on. So I really appreciate you for that. Yeah, well, the worst part about that is that
0: the the, um, the hyper science tribe, the people who want to mock everyone else for their anti-scientific views, often don't actually understand the science. So I'm not coming from this from the perspective of, oh, not everything's about science. We have to be open-minded about other modes of understanding things. I'm coming, from, coming to this from the perspective of having gotten a PhD in nutritional sciences, working in a lab for four years that specialized in liver health like all our experiments were on liver health and uh, and I, I had to have um, we all had to have one person on our doctoral committees who didn't come from the, the department and mine was from the toxicology department and he was a world-renowned toxicologist who traveled all over the world giving lectures on the mechanisms of acetaminophen toxicity. And so he when I had to do my comprehensive exams, I had to learn a lot about drug toxicology because they would basically our written comprehensive exams were basically we got locked in the grad student office for a week or two while we researched the answer to some question that they'd ask us and we had to turn in a written report and basically didn't sleep, you know, grow an extra beard and whatnot. So I mean I'm coming from this from the perspective of knowing a lot about how the liver works and the scientific facts are that if you couldn't do anything to change the degree to which your liver is able to detoxify the things that it encounters there really wouldn't be a science of toxicology or mm. you know or or what there would be is toxicology would only be a catalog of how toxic different substances were. Like, literally, the only book in toxicology would be something that you could take off the shelf and there's an alphabetical index of thousands of substances and you just look at how bad is each one and just give a number to it. That would be toxicological science. And toxicological science isn't anything like that. Like, there's, you know, the simple version of what the liver does is every time it encounters a toxin, it needs to modify it in a way that makes it easier to excrete. And so it oxidizes it. Then it takes something and we call it conjugation. It it joins it to something else that makes it more water soluble. And then in the third stage, it gets rid of it. It goes into the bile. It either goes back into your intestines and out into the feces or gets reabsorbed and winds up in your urine. And each one of those stages involves many enzymes that have nutritional cofactors, When you're going to conjugate it to something, you're conjugating it to something that you made with nutrients that you took in. And so all of those steps are impacted by our nutrition. And so there may be a lot of BS out there about what promotes detoxification, what doesn't. But it's a fact that there's a lot of science that you can talk about, about the different nutrients that you would need to support your liver's detoxification. You know everything. Our liver is just one other part of our body. Every single part of our body is made of stuff that we ate. Right,
1: like, right. All of
0: it, right? There, there cannot be any part of the body that isn't impacted by our nutrition in some way. And that doesn't mean that you assume that nutrition must be the limiting factor to make anything work. Sometimes it's not the most important thing, but it's always a factor. And so to say that, all like if you as if you have a liver, then you are detoxing, and there's nothing you can do, and if you don't, you need to be in the hospital is
1: just bizarre like it doesn't interact <laughs> or engage
0: with the actual science of toxicology at all,
1: which is interesting because, like you said, the people who tend to put up memes like that, mocking detoxes or whatever. They are that hyper science crowd, but they don't really understand it very well. Uh, one thing that I, can, I pride myself on, Chris, is I, I know my limitations, at least to some degree. And that's why I'm so excited to have you on to help unpack a lot of this for the people who are out there. Who are confused because it's like, oh no, detoxification, it's pseudoscience. Um, you know, DNA testing, it's pseudoscience. In fact, one of the most controversial subjects we've had on this show where people have gone back and forth is something that we're going to dive in today, which is nutrient status. How do we measure that? How do we know if we're having enough zinc or magnesium or vitamin C or, you know, any of those things? And So many of the listeners, they take supplements, but they're just kind of going on either, you know, some good recommendations or perhaps some bad recommendations. And, you know, I want to dive into all that. Before we do that though, man, you're so interesting because you have a PhD in nutrition and you understand biochemistry really well, which, uh, you know, people don't realize that is where it's at when it comes to nutrition, but you have this. Part well, you're involved in the ancestral health community. Can you talk a little bit about for someone who may not understand? I thought ancestral health was just talking about like how cavemen <laughs> kind of most probably lived like you know, 20,000, 100, whatever, however many thousands right. of years ago. Can you unpack? Uh, can you talk about that for us? Yeah, so first
0: of all, I I got into ancestral health before ancestral health was a thing and before I got my PhD in nutritional sciences. So my background story was I got interested in health as a teenager and I was studying all kinds of different schools of thought and I wound up doing veganism which pretty much wrecked my health. And I was I was in the midst of that when I was an undergraduate studying history. So well before getting my PhD in nutrition. And I was working in the dining hall and my boss at the time, now my friend Wayne, gave me a pamphlet about raw milk. And he was like, he just gave it to me like, what do you think about this? It makes sense to me. And I read about it and the the thing to me that was of interest there in my development wasn't really the raw milk aspect. It was really that... In that pamphlet, they talked about Weston Price, who was originally the head of what became the American Dental Association's Research Institute for 25 years of his career. And then he branched out and became a pioneer in nutritional anthropology, trying to figure out what caused tooth decay by trying to find people who didn't have any. Because in the United States at that time, this is in the 1930s, our diets were probably the worst ever because we had just recently figured out how to refine foods and make things like white flour but we didn't know about vitamins yet and so mm. or we were just learning about them and so there's this middle ground where people were living off of refined flour products that were not fortified with any nutrients and they had no concept of balance like no, we didn't there there was just there's no reason to say look you can't eat all of your diet as white flour, and there was no reason to say, hey, maybe we should add stuff to this white flour because everyone's eating it and they're not getting the nutrients they need. So it was kind of the bottomed-out period of American nutrition, and every almost everyone had terrible teeth at that time. And so Price went looking for people who didn't have tooth decay, and what he basically discovered was pretty much all of the Uh, All of the traditional diets that he found in different parts of the world, no matter how different they were, all protected against not only tooth decay, but had a profound protection against degenerative disease in general. So anyway, in this pamphlet, there's about a paragraph devoted to this where it emphasizes that he found the key to the freedom to tooth decay. At that time, I had gone to a dentist and discovered that I had over a dozen cavities while I'm a vegan, and I needed two root canals, and so I'm reading this pamphlet, and I'm fascinated by this concept of freedom from tooth decay. I'm like, this is exactly what I need. Yeah. And so I I went out and I read his his magnum opus, Nutrition, Physical Degeneration, and I studied this whole concept of the whole story about how he traveled the world, everything that he found, and that kind of opened my eyes to this idea that we once upon a time had accumulated some collective wisdom about how to eat that had a remarkably profound protection against many of the things that we suffer now from and we've really lost touch with those ideas. And so at that time I'm just starting to want to get involved in health as a career because this is having such a profound impact on me and I'm also looking for other people who understood this, and this is also around the time where not blogs were not popular yet and there was no social media, there were Yahoo groups, which were like right. email list serves and that's how you talk to people. And so I wound up on those and I wound up getting involved in the Weston a Price Foundation because the Weston A Price Foundation was basically dedicated to carrying forth the work of Weston Price. You know, mixed in with some other things that became of interest and so on, and that is that's all before Paleo got popular. So through many years, and that's also in in between here is where I decided to go get my PhD in nutritional sciences. I wanted to do, I wanted to become a doctor. My whole idea was I wanted to pay forward what I had learned, what I learned for my own health. But while I was studying. Pre-med sciences. A number of my professors told me I should go into research. I was also finding myself completely fascinated with how things work more than you know applying uh, science to humans, <laughs> and um, and I, I I was also starting to do a lot of research and writing about my own hypotheses. And I was realizing that if I'm developing scientific hypotheses, no one's going to test them unless I do. And so all mm-hmm. that drove me into the Ph.D. in nutritional sciences. I started my blog while I was in the grad student office, and I never looked at my stats, so I never really had any idea who was reading my blog or, or like who was sending think- people my way. And then I looked at my stats one day, and I saw that all my readership came from all these paleo blogs that I didn't know existed, and so I started paying attention to the paleo movement. This was, you know, at that time, I thought paleo was just a book that Lauren Cordain wrote. And it turned right. out that somewhere in those years it had morphed into this massive community that was centered in the blogosphere, and that m- most of the people who were reading my stuff were were in that community. And so i I got involved there. Now, the term ancestral" came about because uh, in the development of what is now the ancestral health society, there were a number of people who were trying to grapple with what you were saying your conception was of, this is just the study of what cavemen did, and like, why do we need to be cavemen anymore? So the idea of the word ancestral was, look, there's people out there like the Weston A. Price Foundation, where they see the turning point in where everything went downhill as the industrial revolution. And they say, we need to eat more like our grand, great-grandparents. And then there's people in the paleo community who are saying, look, this tur- the real turning point was agriculture. We need to eat like the, the people who are pre-agricultural. And the things that we share in common is that there's we all recognize that there's something wrong with the relationship that we have right now to our environment and we need to look back to the health of our ancestors as an important as an important point of data to help gather insight about what is wrong and what to do about it. And so to me the ancestral health thing is it's not really about we need to eat like our great grandparents or we need to eat like our pre-agricultural ancestors and it's not really about we need to not eat grains and dairy, or we need to not eat legumes, or we need to do eat this or that. It's all about for because I'm coming at this from a, as a scientist, right? So to me, right. it's it's um, it's a heuristic that it, that says, look, not we do, it's not an assumption that everything that's wrong with anything now is because of a mismatch between us and our ancestral environment, but it's a heuristic that says. Look, one valuable avenue to try to brainstorm things that might be important today is to look at how we are living relative to the environment of our ancestors. And when we see discordance between those, we can investigate whether that discordance seems to be a cause of problems that we have or a way of understanding solutions that we need. And it's, and so it's not, it's not a heuristic that is mutually exclusive with any other heuristic. It doesn't mean that we can't start at ground zero and say, let's just come up with a hypothesis because I pulled it out of thin air, or let's come up with a hypothesis because I built it on the last hundred years of what we learned about biochemistry and put in the textbooks when no one was thinking about our ancestors Those are all, like any of those are valuable ways to generate a hypothesis and all of them still have to be tested. It's just that why would you start with, why would you start on a blank slate when in fact humans have been around for millions of years and have accumulated a lot of experience doing different things? Why would you ignore all of that when you're trying to understand
1: humans? That is not a popular thing to say in the evidence-based, the quote-unquote evidence-based health and fitness community. That's for sure. But I I love that we're having this conversation. And like you, Chris, I was quote-unquote paleo before it was a thing either. I got into it in maybe 2001 by Paul Check, who introduced me to the Weston Price Foundation. But unlike you, I did not have the foundational science at the time to really understand, okay, I'm reading about I'm reading physical uh, nutrition and physical degeneration about the 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 way that our teeth and our teeth health or dental health changes when we adopt these new diets that are full of uh, you know um, uh, pasteurized milk and refined white flour and sugar. Uh, so I just kind of got away from it. Eventually, and dove into more of the science. Um, And I'd like to just um, have you unpack some things for some of the people who are maybe, uh, a lot of people have heard, I love that you use the word heuristic. I kind of talk about the evolutionary perspective. I'd love for you to talk about like, what are some things that we should, should know about our ancestors, the way they lived, that has panned out, and has been validated by what you learned in in biochemistry. Well, I think I think there's, you know, there's one
0: thing that I think will not be a surprise to anyone because I think we kind of take it for granted now. So, one obvious obvious case of mismatch is that our ancestors did not evolve on the ability to eat refined foods, right? So, it's mm. not I don't think it's surprising to anyone that people's health fell apart when they started living off of refined flour and and didn't supplement any nutrients, didn't balance the flour with any nutrients. Like that's sort of obvious, but that is an example of something that fits into a mismatch heuristic. And in fact, you can imagine um you know, imagine yourself in the shoes of science of the early nutritional scientists who are studying these things. Um you have to have some motivation to try to figure out what's essential, and there there were, there were definitely scientists who were purely motivated by just understanding like just understanding things for, for its own sake. and so there were, there were certainly scientists who were trying to develop deficient diets for animals just so they could play around and tinker and see what could they take out and what had to be there. but Historically the discovery of all the vitamins came at the time when there was an incredible crisis of nutritional deficiencies. People's health was falling apart and they didn't know why, right? Like the like the think of the think of the classical nutritional deficiencies where you have, you know, ulcerations in the eye and blindness from vitamin A deficiency or you have neurological conditions from a variety of B vitamin deficiencies. People would have seizures, like, you know, in Price's time, they'd have kids who would have hypocalcemic seizures, and no one had any idea what was going on. There were a lot of problems there that people didn't understand, and you can imagine yourself using that heuristic as, especially if you had lived through, if you were, you know, kind of Sixty or seventy years old, as these things are developing, you say, "Hey, wait a second! This didn't happen in my generation. There must be something different about what we're doing now versus what we're doing before." And you use that gap. You you say, "Well, you you say, well, one of the things we're doing different now is we're making white flour. Maybe there's something that's not in there. That maybe there's either something that's toxic that's in the white flour. And in fact, that that was the case." Uh, originally, they were bleaching flour with what was it, nitrogen t- trichloride or I, I, I'm, I'm, something I'm nasty? The, I'm missing the details. They were yeah. yeah, they were bleaching flour with something nasty that got banned in the United States because it was shown that it could make dogs hysterical, and it got banned in Canada because it was shown to uh, be an explosive danger to the people who were working with it. But Whoa. anyway. Anyway, so you can you I mean you can imagine using the mismatch between now and then as a heuristic to say we need to study what's missing from this here. So with that said, there's there are there are other examples that I think are are being shown to be very relevant and some of them are, nu- are nutritional. But I think one of the really interesting one that ones that's catching on now is uh, is light. So it's becoming very popular now with a lot of good science behind it to dim the blue lights on screens in particular or even in homes, people are buying blue blocking glasses for better sleep at night. And one thing, I mean, here's something where we we have a lot of good data about the mismatch between our environment and the environment of our ancestors because we actually have studies now about hunter gather like studying extant hunter gatherers, hunter gatherers that are still around and putting sleep uh, tracking devices on them and looking at how do they sleep? How much do they sleep? What environment do they sleep in? How is it different from ours? And so one thing that's really clear is in extant hunter gatherers, the rates of insomnia and other sleeping problems is ridiculously lower than it is in our society.
1: One yeah, thing that's surprised also to hear true, that
0: yeah one thing that's also true is that they sleep exposed to the natural light throughout their entire day and night so they're all um, or particularly in the warmer I mean these were studied in the warmer environments but the light cycle during the day is is one where you are hitting your peak exposure to sunlight in the probably early to mid to late morning. Um, and then as in the equatorial regions, as the sun gets more and more intense, you seek shade from it in the middle of the day. And then you're exposed to the sun throughout most of the rest of the day. And as the sun sets, it dims and as the sun sets, it wa- it also warms. And by the time you, you're leading up to sleeping, you are uh, exposed to dimmer and dimmer light and to warmer and warmer light colors such that the blue light is very low for hours be- before you go to bed. Now we also have a whole science of how does light impact your body's circadian rhythm, and one of the things that we know from studying circadian rhythm in animal experiments is that, uh, and to some to a lesser degree in human experiments, is that the critical hours of uh, of how light is impacting you is in the beginning of when you wake up, because when you're exposed to light in the morning, that is the signal that's telling your brain that it's daytime. And then in the two to four hours before you go to bed, your ability to start increasing melatonin production, which is carrying the symbol that it's time to to go to sleep, is caused by the accum- the cumulative effects of 2 to 4 hours of darkness. 2 and to 4 darkness- hours.
1: So yeah. a lot of people say, "Hey, just get off your turn dim your lights an hour before bedtime." So that's not enough according dimming, to
0: Dimming your dimming your lights is also not enough.
1: Well, I, this it
0: depends, right? So some people are very sensitive to light and some people are not so sensitive to light and there's there's genetics that underlie that in uh, so, one one of the proteins in that receives the signal in the eye is called melanopsin, and there are genetic polymorphisms that make some people very, uh, very sensitive to the variations in light, and other people not so sensitive to the variations of light. So, mm-hmm. you you take someone who's who doesn't have any problems sleeping, they they might be perfectly fine with just not staring into a bright blue screen at night. And if they just don't do that, they don't have any problems at all, right? So, I mean, that person, I'm not going to tell them to rearrange their their whole life around their light exposure unless they have family and the people living with them are hypersensitive, Then you then you probably should. But, or at least you have to negotiate how to approach that. But there are a significant chunk of people like me who are very hypersensitive. And if, you are in the more sensitive camp then dimming the lights is not enough because if you're just going to read a paperback book by a normal incandescent light bulb that is too much blue light and that'll shut down your melatonin production so it's interesting because there's a lot of people out there that are saying that are very dogmatic about technology and they they're they're like Don't look at your phone, don't watch any TV, read a book or something like that. But I'll have insomnia if I do that because because of the reason that I just said. The blue light is is much from the incandescent light bulb, whereas I can stick my face in my phone if I have night shift on and I redden the tone and if I got blue, black and glosses on. I'm getting way less blue light by playing with my phone than I am if... I'm reading a book by an incandescent light bulb, so I actually have special lights in my place where at 8 p.m. I I switch the ambient lighting to light bulbs that come from lowbluelights.com that filter out the blue light, and so it gives kind of an amber tone, and I, I I like that because it it uh they're bright enough that I can read or I can do anything. I don't need to wear glasses around the house, and it's just it's just easier. But I mean this is a really great example where we can take a heuristic like how would you how would you how would you develop that without any useful heuristic I mean yeah you you, you could start from the ground up but it's it becomes much easier if you just look at the fact like hey humans out, before they lived outdoors today we live indoors humans before got light from the sun and campfires Humans today get artificial light. It's like, what's different about those things? And it becomes much more efficient to study that science. But sometimes you might come up with an idea and you investigate it. It doesn't pan out and you know, you leave it behind. So it's now, but you, you were talking about tribalism before you have to remember you're talking to me. I, I, have a background in research, right? So I think about this as a researcher. I think about this as a heuristic for developing and testing hypotheses. You're going to find other people who think of it as a tribal badge of honor and they're going to give you a different take. Yeah,
1: I, but that's, I love but what...
0: That's, he- exactly, that's exactly true with the evidence-based crowd. Right. right. To some people, that's a heuristic. To other people, it's a tribal badge of honor.
1: That's such a great point. And for anyone listening... I want you to think about who you're getting your information from and who you're actually being. Are you part of a tribe because you want to belong to a community, which is a very strong drive in human beings, speaking of you know, ancestral traits? But at the same time, that's not necessarily going to serve you. And I love what you're doing here. I, I feel like we're kindred spirits because... I think about things, although I'm not a researcher, I don't have a PhD, Chris, but I think about things like that. I just want to know, I guess, the truth, the objective reality. And I I love what you said, man, about you've got to think a little bit deeper. You don't just say, hey, get off your phone and turn on a light and and read a book. You've got to think a little bit deeper than that. And uh, that may not be the right thing if you can have, right, the night, night, whatever it is that Mac has on the iPhone or (laughs) Apple has on the iPhone and then some blue blocking glasses, which I don't have mine on right now, even though it's 939 at night, but I should have known better. You wouldn't have been weirded out at all. You'd be like, this guy knows. (laughs) Yeah. Well, hey, um, let's talk a little bit more about this. Um, Another thing, since we're on the topic of light I was reading a, a recent review uh, or two thousand sixteen review about sunlight sunlight exposure and I think it's something that a lot of people are confused about everybody is or I shouldn't say everybody but a lot of people are really frightened of getting skin cancer so they slather their bodies on uh, slather you know sunscreen on their body or they just avoid the sun completely and they think they can make up for it with a vitamin supplement but it doesn't seem. Like that's the case. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because vitamin D, it's uh, you know, it's people who have better vitamin D live longer and have less problems, even if they get sun exposure. As long as you're not getting sunburned, I can talk about a little bit about
0: it. Um, I think that one thing that's clear is that the sunlight like we were just talking about is playing an important role in your circadian rhythm. And so I think that's something that you definitely can't replace with any kind of supplement because because you know you the, the sunlight is the signal that your brain is using to know when it's daytime and nighttime. Now there's other there I know there's a body of research about some of the other benefits of sunlight. My I haven't dug too deep into it. So, um, I'm sure there's other people that could speak to that much better. Uh, but definitely the sun, the sun does more than just synthesize vitamin D, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not good to talk in much more detail about that though.
1: Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well then why don't we do this? Because a lot of people are confused with, uh, you know, for the most, the majority of people. They say they want health, but what really drives them is fat loss. But you could follow, say, like if it fits your macros style program and you could lose fat uh, like the McDonald's diet guy or the Twinkie diet guy or, uh, you know, I had Lane Norton. I'm not sure if you know who he is or not, but, uh, you know, he's got a PhD in in nutrition and, um, you know, he's on the bodybuilding and powerlifting side and he said, He eats ice cream every night because he fits it into his macros. Um, You know, so people get kind of confused. There's this part where, you know, body fat, it's definitely something that's important. But if we're only eating processed foods or, or we're eating a lot of processed foods and we're maintaining low body fat, that necessarily isn't so healthy either. You get you can have nutrient deficiencies. you can have an imbalance between your methionine and glycine ratios. can you talk, or you can use cooking methods that you know create like ages and those types of things. Can you talk a little bit about what was impressed nutritional practices to help people just eat better uh, eat more optimally and and with this ancestral health heuristic or perspective in mind?
0: yeah um so so, if you're if you're interested in fat loss, then I, you know, I, I don't think that there are many things besides your calories, your protein, really, your calories, and your protein that are going to be the ultimate dictators of your body composition there, your calories, protein, and your exercise. But, you know, are you going to be healthy or not? And so that's where that really comes in. There are probably cases where, yeah, well, to be honest, most of the most nutrient deficiencies, at least in their classic forms, lead to low body weight, not not excess body weight. And actually, if you look at one of the thing, one of the things that should strike you if you were to read Weston Price's book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, is that he took like fourteen hundred pictures, and uh, not all of them are in the book, but many dozens of them are in the book, probably hundreds. And there's literally like no one who is fat at that time. And so I think it's pretty clear that obesity in the modern era is not really about vitamins and minerals. It's really about the combination of our lifestyle and the combination of the types of foods that we eat. And so a lot of foods are designed to be eaten in larger quantities, and that makes it harder to control our appetites. Now, if you're just talking about fat loss, then that may or may not be relevant. So. I, you know, I, like I, I'm a, I'm a moderator, so I can set rules for myself really easily, and I can be like, well, I'm just going to eat a half a cup of ice cream each night, and I'm going to displace these other calories, and that I could do that pretty easily. There are other people who couldn't have ice cream in the house because they would eat all of it if it were there. That's and, me. <laughs> uh, that and that and that you know, and and that. So you're an abstainer, and you should uh, not. Keep ice cream in the house, right? <laughs> Unless you want to get that. Um, but that's but that's that's sort of besides the point, right? And and I think people have a lot of difficulty compartmentalizing these things the way they should. I think you're asking me this question to bring some nutritional sense to your audience, but I talk to people all the time who get all of their fat loss advice from people who don't know anything about body composition at all. So. And mm. I think that's sort of the norm in the in the ancestral health community is that people are so focused on quality and and uh, and a lot of people are contrarians and so they're they're very susceptible to the whole like calories don't matter and it's all about like the quality of your food and all of this is BS like your body composition doesn't really have anything to do with the quality of your food. <laughs> Ah, uh, what it has to do with the quality of your food is when you when you lose weight, do you feel do you ha- what do you feel like? And when you're when you're eating uh, when you're eating your egg white diet, are you developing red scaly skin between your genitals and your anus? Um, there's various things like that. So. I think we need to compartmentalize. Like the the macros, the ex, the fitness regime, and the calories are really about your body composition. But you can have, you can be, uh, you can not look that hot with your clothes off, and be very healthy. And you can be really, really lean, or really, really muscular, or both, and have a lot of health problems. And so, once you realize that, I think that's where you you need to think about the quality of your diet as protecting your health. And so, for that, uh, with that mindset, then I think some of the basic rules that I would recommend for people are: first of all, when you hit your protein target, right? So let's say you selected your protein target from your from if it fits your macros, and then once you have that protein target. You should diversify how you get that protein among meat, poultry, fish, shellfish, dairy, and eggs. And the reason you should do that is because if you're trying to get all your nutrients in and you're not trying to think about it too hard, then diversification has the same effect as diversification in your economic portfolio. You are mitigating the risks of overconsuming any particular type of food and you are reaping the benefits of the different nutrient profiles in those foods. So for example, dairy products are really high in calcium and meat isn't. Um, as another example, egg yolks are really high in biotin, one of the important B vitamins in energy metabolism, one of the things that is really important for skin, hair, and nail health. And none of those other none of those other protein sources are. If you're eating the egg, eat the whole egg. If you, you know, the egg yolk is where all that biotin is. The egg mm. white, even there, and a lot of people misunderstand this. There's a compound in egg white called avidin, and it can induce a biotin deficiency. And cooking destroys avidin, but there's no form of cooking that completely destroys avidin. So you most cooked eggs have about 30% of the residual avidin activity. You can definitely get a biotin deficiency by eating a lot of egg whites without supplementing biotin, right? So if you're trying to eat whole foods and you're trying to do this without taking supplements and you don't want to micromanage it, eat the whole egg. And then if you look at shellfish, there are some shellfish like clams that are way high in iron and B12, like higher than anything else. Oysters, way higher in zinc than anything else. If you look at like beef, chicken, and fish, they have different fatty acid profiles. They have different different nutritional strengths and weaknesses. So if you just diversify those protein sources, you are going to do a lot to secure your nutrition compared to if you just pick one of them and stick with it all the time. Great advice. Yeah. A second rule would be you take whatever your carbohydrate allotment was from if it fits your macros, and you take those carbohydrates and you diversify them across whole grains, uh, legumes, starchy tubers, and fruits. And you do this because, once again, all these different categories of things have their own nutritional strengths and weaknesses. If you live off of white bread, I guarantee you, you will have suboptimal magnesium status and you will have suboptimal potassium status. That's because even though it's enriched white flour, the enrichment has nothing to do with what was originally in the grain and it has everything to do with public health policy saying, well, we should put this in there, put that in there. Like people eat a lot of that, let's stuff that in there. And uh, you just you just aren't getting those those nutrients. All those other foods, even if it's whole grains, you'll be getting more magnesium and potassium. But grains don't have anywhere near as much potassium as starchy tubers or legumes do. So you're going to get a much better potassium ratio if you're eating those foods. Grains don't have much folate. Folate is important for all kinds of things, including your mental health, folate is very rich in legumes, uh, not so much in any of those other foods. Fruits have more vitamin C than any of those other foods, right? So if you just say like, I'm going to just spread my carbohydrate allotment out of, across these different types of foods, then that goes a very long way towards securing your nutrition.
1: A couple other let, things ask you, Let me, the- you, yeah, let me in- interject there because uh, yeah. uh, you brought up grains and it's really important because- um, A Cochrane review on grains and cardiovascular disease came out. I'm sure you checked that out. And it showed there's just nothing, there's no health benefits, at least in terms of cardiovascular disease, with grain consumption. And I recently saw something that was put out by the Blue Zone guy, actually an article putting out by the Blue Zone guy, uh, Dan Bootner, and it linked to a British Medical Journal article on um, I think it was a, either a systematic review or meta-analysis of, of grains showing it did have a beneficial effect. And also the Blue Zones guy, he, was very, very, he, he promotes grains because just talking about this whole ancestral perspective, a lot of these cultures that he went in, uh, checked out, they uh, grains were a big part of it. And I'm here in Thailand right now, they ate a ton of white rice, man. I mm, mean, yeah. it's hard to find anything else. Could you talk a little bit more about... Those things that I mentioned and and what your take is on grains.
0: So uh, I I need to understand your perspective a little bit. You're, are you arguing that that refined grains or that no grains are more ancestral
1: um, than whole grains? I I it wasn't even an, I was asking a question because I don't that, well, have not, an don't argument.
0: argument. Uh, you're, but, you're, uh, are you asking me? Are you asking me more about the comparison between whole grains and? Refined grains, like are eaten in Thailand, or are you asking me more about whole grains versus no grains, like you'd find in a paleo diet?
1: Yeah, Uh more like versus grains versus no grains. Okay, so so look, first of all,
0: I don't think that everyone needs to eat grains, but the statement that I made is is first of all, it's it's focused at a population that overwhelmingly eats grains and doesn't eat anywhere near as many. Starchy tubers, almost zero legumes, etc. Right? So, so almost so almost anyone who I would say this to would be. Well, that's not true because my audience is, my my audience and your audience are probably eating less grains. But if you put if you picked a random sample of people across the street, then definitely those people would eat fewer grains because of what I said, rather than more grains. And I think that's important because out of all those. Foods like out of grains, legumes, starchy tubers, and fruits. Grains are probably the least balanced in their nutrient profiles. And, uh, but with that said, so people in our, who in our audience who might be debating our audiences who might be debating should I take grains out or not? I don't think you have any intrinsic problem from taking grains out. But I think that every time you take any food group out. You become progressively more and more vulnerable to nutrient deficiencies, and you probably will not develop any nutrient deficiencies if you take out grains and you leave in legumes, uh, starchy tubers, and fruits. But it all adds up, right? And so, one of the things that you could note is that one of the things you could note is that if you want to support Methylation, which is the process that's dependent on vitamin B12, folate, choline, and another nutrient that's less well known, known as betaine. Um, and this is used to support your mental health. It's used to. It's probably important for protecting against cancer. It's prevents important for preventing birth defects in in uh, pregnant women and plays many other roles in health. If you want to support that, then you need to get. Uh, enough of those nutrients, and to some extent, folate and choline and betaine are all kind of interchangeable because they all play uh, roles in su- supplying methyl groups in kind of interchangeable ways. So you can use one or the other. And if you're looking at the diet that the like the dietary principles that I was just describing, egg yolks are your main source of choline. And legumes are your main source of folate. Now, if you're talking about grains, whole grains are actually a they're actually a a kind of okay source of choline in some of them, but particularly wheat actually. So whole wheat is a kind of half decent source of choline, and it's a pretty good source of betaine, which is which is another methyl donor. And in fact, if you were to try to really beef up your beading supply, like eating wheat germ or wheat bran would be uh, a great way to do that. And so it's it's not that it's necessary. It's just that you're supplying all these redundant nutrients. And it's what what isn't true is that if you cut out grains in your diet, you don't need to think about what that did to your diet, right? So- what i'm laying down is the is the not thinking about it version of how to eat i'm no problem at all saying like hey if you want to cut out your grains just like tweak these things and and fine but you if you don't have a a specific reason to cut out any group of foods in the categories that i've been discussing then i think you're actually more robust to Protection against nutrient deficiencies than you are if you start cutting out those food groups. And I don't know that a meta analysis of studies looking at the impact of whole grains on cardiovascular risk is actually useful in addressing these questions at that level because those, like the questions that they're asking, are so crude that they're not really designed to capture. What we're talking about right now, which is what are the nutritional benefits of those whole grains and what are you going to do to compensate when you remove them?
1: Wow, that was expertly answered, Chris. Thanks so much, man. I mean, because uh, I was seriously, you're like, what's your, what were you trying to say? I'm, I'm trying to say I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you, and you put it in a way where, yeah, you're getting us to think about things and everybody's like, just stop eating grains or just don't eat carbs or just stop eating fat. Or whatever it is, and and you and you're bringing up. You got to think about if you really want to dial your nutrition in. You, you really have to think about what you're missing out, and it's just that extreme approach. It, it does just doesn't need to be done anyway. And like you yeah. mentioned, yeah, please.
0: Oh well, I mean, say 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 someone cuts out the carbs, then you're cutting out about five of those food groups, and then it gets some, even more thought is required.
1: But keto is the best thing ever. Since the, you know, sliced uh, <laughs> it, well, sliced actually, whatever keto bread is, sliced parmesan. I don't know, whatever. I'm not keto. In case, in case you haven't figured that out, I'm not into that. I, I tried going very low carbs, and I started having anxiety issues, and even had panic attacks. Had to go to the doctor. Doctor couldn't figure it out. Obviously, doesn't know what's going on. And I eventually found some information about carbohydrates and, and serotonin levels and not not a lot of research, but just some hypotheses about carbs dropping, uh, you know, low carbohydrates, you know, and how it lowers serotonin because you just don't get enough yeah. tryptophan in uh, from protein. You, you have anything yeah, to add well, there, insul- by the
0: way? Yeah. So, ins- well, insulin, yeah, insulin increases tryptophan transport into the brain, but it also affects... Uh, Enzymes involved in producing serotonin too. So, so
1: if you're listening right now and you're doing low carb because your favorite YouTube or social media guru said it was a good thing, but you're sketched out and you feel super anxious <laughs> for no reason, probably find another person to follow. Actually, that person probably isn't listening to this show because uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I'm fine with low yeah, carbohydrates so, as an approach for fat loss, but yeah. not necessarily for health.
0: Well, I th- I think there are some broader applications, but I think it's, you know, it's it's very individual and it's people that are at the extremes who need extreme approaches. So I do have consultant clients that are on keto diets for, you know, for managing particular health issues that are, you know, not your run-of-the-mill health issues. Uh, and I do think that they have, you know, like well we were just talking about serotonin, it's also the case that ketogenic diets upregulate gaba and improve the gaba to glutamate ratio in the brain so a lot of people that have that's probably probably underlies why they're effective against epilepsy in probably not all epileptics but in a in a large subset of epileptics who respond to ketogenic diets it's probably part of the mechanism and there are a lot of anecdotally there are a lot of people who report that keto helps their sleep and i think in those people mm. it's for them it's probably a glutamate gaba thing and so there are probably there, are, there we could probably do more research to discover subsets of people with for example glutamate gaba issues where ketogenic diet is helpful there but you know the thing is i mean first of all I, I don't know what the relative likelihood of getting that benefit versus the drawback that you described was and if you just take someone and so this is why this is a problem when you when you have tribalism along these lines is that most of the people doing the keto diet aren't doing a keto diet because they think they have a a glutamate gaba specific problem <laughs> <I> <laughs> doing a keto diet because <laughs> they think some total b s thing like it's the original human diet or something like that, which is complete nonsense. and so, and it depends, right? There are some people who are more who are more nuanced in their advocation of keto than other people, like, like Rob Wolf advocates keto he's he's grown very nuanced about it we we talk a lot about it and so on but there are um but there are definitely the the large proportion of people out there who are doing any diet are not doing it because they're thinking like a tinkerer and they shouldn't be right because most like i think like a tinkerer because that's that's where i come from that's my mindset and most people aren't aren't going to think like that but i think we and so we need to acknowledge that right most people are going to break down on tribal lines it's part of human nature most people are not going to going to think through their diets like we are they don't want to they have other priorities in their life they don't they don't have time to get the requisite background knowledge so I, what I think we need to do is is uh, be more sensible in simple ways about what the defaults are, and I think that from a yeah so even from an ancestral pr- perspective, I mean we know that we know that in the Paleolithic people ate grains because we found them in Paleolithic teeth, right? So right. W- like we like the default per and also you could. You could start with no heuristic, and you could just say, "I mean, you're you can't start with no heuristic because the last century of science all used heuristics to develop everything that it had. Like it didn't come out of nowhere. But if you just sit down and say, like, I'm just going to collect nutritional science and figure out what is the diet that's most robust to nutritional deficiencies." You're going to come to the same conclusion that your financial advisor is coming to about your economic portfolio, which is that the more you diversify across good assets it doesn't mean you throw crap into like your financial advisor isn't going to say, well, you have like you have to diversify, so you have to put these doomed penny stocks that we right. know are right like <laughs> like you say here's the spectrum of good assets and you diversify across the good assets, right? So regardless of whether substituting whole grains for some other food prevents or worsens heart disease risk or whatever whole grains have a track record in human history they have they have important nutrients in them they have they can be part of a healthy macronutrient composition right everything about them doesn't nothing about them says you should eat 95% grains but everything about them says they can be a good at asset in your portfolio. And so the default assumption should be to diversify across all those good assets, because if you don't have a specific need to start cutting things out, then what you want is the thing, is the approach that allows you the highest chance of getting everything you need with the least amount of attention devoted to tinkering around with it.
1: Yeah. So dietary diversity, as long as you're focusing on high quality foods, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I had a discussion recently with someone who was kind of talking, saying kind of the opposite things, but, you know, the way the context you're bringing it up in, it it makes a lot of sense. Also, you know science way better than he does, doesn't have his PhD. Yeah, uh, you're bringing up some good stuff. And Chris, I want to change directions a little bit because you've talked about genetic polymorphisms and the importance of understanding, say, if you're hypersensitive to light, which I bet I have that that polymorphism, and I don't even need to get tested for it because I'm like super sensitive to light. But I had John Berardi from Precision Nutrition on, they did a a really interesting dive into genetic testing and what it can actually tell you. And uh, I think a lot of people really don't understand it very well. I mean, I know I don't. But when I came up on your stuff, you talk a lot about genes and using what you find in genetic testing to influence your nutritional supplement decisions. So your nutrition and the supplements that you take. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to using DNA testing and, and uh, how you use it? And maybe something that we can take away from that. Yeah. So I don't
0: use it that extensively, and my default actually—I mean, I use it less than people want me to. So I get a significant amount of requests from people who say, "Hey, do you do consulting? Well, like, will you look at my twenty-three andme Me and tell me what to eat and things like that?" And uh, I don't—I don't think the science is anywhere near being able to do that yet, but there are. A handful of genetic polymorphisms, which you know mean polymorphism just means that that particular gene varies in the population, and you can find a bunch of people who have this version, a bunch of people have that version. And these, there are a handful of these polymorphisms that have been shown to affect nutritional requirements in a way that I think you can build recommendations around them. So the one, the one that I think is most impactful, that has the most science behind it, that I've Talked about the most in my material and that I utilize the most in making recommendations for people in practice is MTHFR, and MTHFR is the enzyme that allows you to make methylfolate, which is the form of folate that supports the methylation process. And there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of diseases that are associated with MTHFR, and a lot of them are. Are mental health issues so, but there's also like a lot of controversy around that. Or
1: what 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 type of yeah, mental so, health issues?
0: So, yeah so depression is definitely one. Um, the anecdotal data is quite interesting too. So M- Emily Deans, who is uh, has the evolutionary psychology blog, she ha- she has run MTHFR tests on her patients, and about half of her patients all of her parents, she's a, a psychiatrist, right? So her patients all have mental issues they're coming to her for. And um, the the worst MTHFR status, meaning the lowest activity of that enzyme that is about 15% of the population is about 50% of the patients that she tests in practice. So I, that's, pretty, dr- that's pretty dramatically discordant, right? Um, now there's a lot of controversy over this that you know some studies find this disease is associated with MTHFR, but then other studies conflict. There's some meta-analyses that show like some are more robustly associated than others. But what I think is um, and if, if you really want to see the associations with, with mental health issues, what is uh, even more informative to look at is COMT, and COMT is the enzyme that uses methyl groups from folate um, or the other methyl donors to methylate a handful of neurotransmitters, the most predominant of which is dopamine. And mm. COMT is basically half the population is in the middle, and a quarter of the population has low activity and a quarter population that has high activity. And the reason that it's spread like that is because there's advantages to being one or the other. And so if you have low COMT activity, you are more predisposed towards being more mentally stable and more mentally rigid. Right? Stable we, sounds good. Rigid sounds bad. But they're the same part of that spectrum. If you have high cMT activity, you're more uh, predisposed to be mentally flexible and to be like hyper distracted. Right? Flexible sounds good, but distracted sounds bad. And so it's a it's really a spectrum and. And if everyone is healthy, then it really is a matter of personality type. So the the, the one of the one of the um, dichotomies that's been used to describe this in terms of archetypes is the low activity is the worrier with an O who wor- worries a lot, and the high activity is the warrior who goes to war with an A. And hmm. I, I don't I don't think that's that makes the worrier sound good and the worrier sound bad. And so I don't think it's, it's really that good. Like if, if that was really the case, if it was just beneficial to be high activity, you wouldn't have an even spread across the population, but rather what you find is that the people who have the high activity, they are less vulnerable to things like anxiety and depression and worrying, Uh, but they, but they're more vulnerable to anything around distractibility. So, so, like, they have more trouble performing at schoolwork, for example, uh, because they don't have as as much of an ability to focus. Now, what's what I think is interesting is that for COMT, there are not well demonstrated nutritional interventions because because it's it's not it's not really a, a directly nutrient related gene. There are there are some data indicating that vitamin D impacts its expression, that hormones impact its expression, um, but they're kind of messy. But what is very clear is that you methylate dopamine with this enzyme using the methyl groups that come from B12, that come from folate, that come from choline. And if you're using the methyl groups that come from folate, you need to use MTHFR. So I think What you what you're looking at is the reason that the genetic data is so messy and people can say, oh, these studies are conflicting. Like nothing like this this there is nothing that we know about this. We can't do anything with this, is because they're asking questions that are too crude. Like the question does MTHFR homozygous for C six seventy seven T have a statistically significant increase in the risk of OCD or something, it's really the wrong question because it's not just about the enzyme activity. It's whether you match your nutrition to that enzyme activity. And then it's also about really your COMT, right? So if you have low MTHFR activity, that compromises your supply of methylfolate, but if you have a higher folate intake, a higher choline intake, and then you have genetically high COMT activity, you're probably not going to have a manifestation of that mental problem because you compensated with everything else. So what we re- like, we, we really can't tease this apart unless we think through it mechanistically. And I think when you do think through it mechanistically, you can ask questions that are much more nuanced and you can come to much more sensible answers. So here are some facts that we do know. Number one, if you have low MTHFR activity, you have less of an ability to use folate for methylation, so you need choline as the alternative methyl donor. And in fact, there's a lot of people out there who are just giving high dose methyl folate supplements to people who have low MTHFR activity. There aren't any studies showing that that helps. It make it kind of makes some sense, but there are there are several uh, there are several human trials. Where they've shown that people with uh, people with low MTHFR activity have altered choline utilization, and that to normalize their choline metabolism, they need 900 to 1200 milligrams of choline a day, which is what you'd get from four to five egg yolks. Mm. And most people aren't eating four to five egg yolks. And most yeah. most uh, most if it fits your macros, people are not eating <laughs> any egg yolks. Right, so this is where yeah. you can get where you can imagine someone getting into trouble, right? So, like, even if you're IIFYM and you're you're knowledgeable enough to be supplementing your egg white diet with biotin, then uh, you're still in trouble because you don't have choline in there. So you can imagine someone who is doing great with body composition, but then they become more depressed or they develop more anxiety or their OCD starts to get a little worse. These are all things that could be explained by a choline-restricted diet in the presence of MTHFR because you're, you need more more methyl groups from choline. You're not getting them. And then your what winds up happening is The methyl group supply to the COMT enzyme is lower. You have less methylation of dopamine, and that impacts everything in your brain in the direction of too much mental rigidity, right? So just enough mental stability is an asset. But when you start floating into the extremes, because now you're combining your genetic predisposition with nutrition that exacerbates it instead of nutrition that mitigates it, then you're falling into the extreme of mental rigidity. And even that can be an asset if you're thinking about the right things. right? Like You might make more money if you got lucky, and the thing that got stuck in your brain was this brilliant idea that is your next business. And you can't think of anything else until you get it done. But you can be out of luck if what got stuck in your brain was... Damn, you screwed everything up with that last girlfriend, <laughs> and you're never gonna forgive yourself. You know, so, yeah. Um, so yeah, you don't really want to be that reliant on luck. You kind of want to put yourself into the middle ground where you're buffering yourself against your your nutritional predispositions. So with MTHFR, um, I actually I actually think that it's there's good enough science where i developed a protocol around it where some of the stuff like the choline is tested in human trials and other stuff is is more my biochemical reasoning but it's pretty good biochemical reasoning because there's even though not everything is tested in, in clinical trials we have we have incredible science With mathematical modeling of like what happens to the methylation system if you eat a meal that has protein coming in, what happens to all these enzymes, how much do they go down, how much do they go up? There's tons of basic science around it. And so some of the other things that we know is that if you have low methylfolate production, you tend to lose glycine. And glycine is an amino. It's the simplest amino acid. It is not an essential amino acid. A lot of people don't think it's important because it's not an essential amino acid. But we tend to just in normal diets, we tend to fall short in our abilities to synthesize it by about 10 grams or more per day. When you have low methylfolate levels that actually causes a cascade of events that causes you to pee out that glycine and lose it in your urine so you're much worse in that sense not having enough glycine could compromise your collagen synthesis if you work out a lot and you don't you can't fulfill your demand for collagen resynthesis in response to your exercise it's not going to be good for your joints and your connective tissues and your joints it's not might not be good for your muscles either probably not good for your skin the you know if you're looking at your face the degree to which you wrinkle over time is largely a result of how 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 much can you replace the damaged collagen with new collagen so if your gly- glycine levels are sinking you're going to be aging faster what you see in your skin is also happening in your blood vessels so we we know a lot about cholesterol's relation to heart disease what we kind of ignore is that the actual critical event that causes a heart attack or stroke is the rupture of an atherosclerotic plaque and the rupture of the atherosclerotic plaque is largely driven by the rate of collagen synthesis relative to the inflammatory collagen degradation in that plaque so if you don't have enough glycine you know that that's a problem as well but even in mental health Glycine protects you from distraction, and glycine also has calming and antipsychotic effects. So glycine helps you sleep better at night. In schizophrenics, they've shown that supplements of 60 grams of glycine a day has uh, antipsychotic effects. That's a lot of glycine, but um, much so for sleep, it's three grams. Taking it with a meal, five grams helps stabilize your blood sugar. So you imagine yourself with with low MTHFR activity, you want to stop that glycine wasting. So in addition to the choline, one thing that I recommend is, and and the fitness audience might appreciate this, creatine supplementation hmm. helps lower the demand for methyl groups because 45% of your methylation every day is to synthesize creatine. So if you're supplementing with five grams of creatine over the course of six weeks, maybe eight, four, maybe four to eight weeks. You're going to see your methylation demand get maximally suppressed. It's really, the, it's really the only thing that you can do to lower the methylation demand, and it, and it has, should have a big effect. So creatine supplementation helps conserve methylfolate because you don't need to use it as much. I do recommend taking a small dose of methylfolate, so like 400 micrograms if you're not getting it through the diet. If it's better to get it through the diet, but getting it through the diet means two to three servings of legumes or greens a day. When I'm talking about a serving, I mean like a hundred grams vegetables. That's tends to be hard for people. They have to be fresh, not frozen. They can't be very old, and they and you know, let's see, th- like three, uh, three hundred gram servings of vegetables is like two or three cups when measured cooked and double that measured raw. So we're talking about a lot. So for a lot of people, it's better to just take a a supplement. But you can't, one thing that you cannot do that a lot of people think you can do is just slam methylfolate into this system as if you're going to override the low MTHFR activity. MTHFR, when it's at high activity, is adding methyl groups to folate that you had already eaten eighteen thousand times a day to each folate molecule. So you have one folate molecule coming in with a methyl group. There's like there's no you're not eating eighteen thousand times the RDA for folate. That's not safe. No one's ever done that. So you're not you're not compensating for that. But you're just trying to get some in there, right? So you want to get some. You want to get the folate in there. You and you want to conserve it so you can serve it with the creatine lowering the demand you can serve it with the choline increasing the alternative supply and then you may you may need extra glycine for people who don't really have the money to spend on testing i suggest just tinkering around with like level 1 would be start using bone broths in your cooking. So bone broths are, anything with collagen has a lot of glycine. So bone broth is mainly collagen as protein. Uh, level two would be supplement with gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen or glycine. Um, and you can, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if you're not testing anything, you just have to kind of do it by trial and error. Like is are the doses that you're using Do they seem to help your joints? Do they seem to help you sleep better? Do they seem to stabilize your blood sugar? Do they seem to increase your mood? Do they do anything for you? Um, And you kind of have to do trial and error against your subjective experience. But I also have recommended blood testing for people with MTHFR. And so you can actually, if you do an amino acid analysis, you can look at your glycine levels and you can see if they're low. And the ideal thing would be to actually use the amount of glycine that's normalizing your glycine levels.
1: Yeah. So basically, what if you're listening? What you need to do is just go to Chris Master John PhD and hire Chris because <laughs> that was a lot of stuff, Chris. Uh, man, I've, I've I know quite a bit about nutrition, relatively speaking. But man, yeah, perhaps we can get into that a little bit more on another podcast. That was just fascinating stuff, and I love how. Deep, you dive into thinking about these things, and I think it's really important for anyone listening to realize if they think they know a lot about nutrition, what they really mean by that is they understand the basics very well. But there's all this other stuff going on with new information coming out, and all the things you were talking about with the uh, the genetic polymorphisms, the COMT, the M, the the I call it the motherfucker gene. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's just easier to remember. But uh, uh, Chris, I I, want to be respectful of your time. And uh, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the nutritional cheat sheet. So I bought that from you and it's an incredible resource. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah. So the nutritional cheat sheet is...
0: So we, we before we talked about uh, we were talking for a while about how would you eat if you're trying not to micromanage this and you're trying not to think about it really, and the fact of the matter is that's like it's probabilistic like we, you can lay out these these nutritional principles, but at the end of the day we're all unique individuals and we undergo different stresses. We uh, have different genetics. We only understand some small fraction of how our genetics impact our nutrition, and we don't actually know what's in our food. So, like you can enter all your food into a Chronometer or something and track your nutrition, but not only do you not know how you as an individual line up to the RDA in your needs, so it might tell you, oh, you're getting 100% of the RDA of X. You might need more than that. You might need less than that. But also, what's in your food might be different, right? So there's, these nutritional databases take averages, sometimes not even of large sample sizes. And we have to rely on them to some extent, but you don't actually ever know exactly what your nutrient intakes are. And so by the time that you take everything that you don't know about what you're getting in and what you need and what that's doing to you, You wind up in a position where if you want to be proactive about maintaining your health for the future, or if you have some problem now that you either can't resolve or that you want to resolve far quicker than you would if you were just operating in the dark, then what you really need is a rational approach to arriving as quickly and efficiently as you can. At figuring out what is left to do to optimize your nutrition, and mo- there, now there's a lot of people who don't fall into this category, right? So among them, people who don't care, which is a lot of people. Not probably not a lot of people in our audiences, but you know. it's a lot of people. Um, and people who people who just a lot of trust that whatever they're doing now is going to, is going to keep them through the future, or who, people who only care about what's going on right now and have no problems. But most of the people who are motivated about nutrition, who are in your audience and who are in my audience, do fall into this category. Most of us do care to some degree about our future. There are things, little things that we can do now to ensure that we have a much healthier future. We're probably going to do them. And- probably a lot like who's motivated to listen to a podcast like this probably a lot of people who have goals that they have not met right now
1: right absolutely or suffering so yeah. we have a lot of people with sleep issues or joint injuries and uh most of our audience they're in their 40s and 50s so looking to really you know live a long healthy life
0: yeah Right. Uh, like a lot so probably the majority of us have u- unresolved problems right now that we would like to that we would like to resolve more quickly. So to the extent that any of those relate to your nutrition, then w- what I've produced in testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet is basically the simplest way that you can use the resources at your disposal to arrive at actionable conclusions to improve your nutrition. And there are three approaches that it outlines for different people with different levels of resources. So the comprehensive approach uses comprehensive lab test screening, blood and urine tests, dietary analysis, blood pressure measurements, and a review of the signs and symptoms that could be related to nutrients. And then for people who uh, don't have the financial resources to pay out-of-pocket for comprehensive nutritional screening, which is actually very expensive. Then there's a cost-saving approach. And then for people who have a lot of money and no time, there's a time-saving approach. And so basically what you want to do is you want to get these three legs of evidence and synthesize them. So leg one is the comprehensive blood and urine testing, this is what objectively is happening in your body. Dietary analysis is all about plausibility. It's what is your diet and lifestyle look, now, look like now? And what would we rationally expect to be missing or to be present in too much that you would need to adjust? And the signs and symptoms look subjectively at what is happening in your body. So, for example, if you're tired all the time or if you can't sleep well or you know, if you, can, if you can fall asleep but you keep waking up or if you have red, itchy skin, is that red, itchy skin in your scalp? Is that red, itchy skin around your nose and mouth? Is it, is it in your perineum, which is between your genitals and your anus? Is your skin bumpy? Like All these different things that provide information that you can look at no one has to test you but it's in your personal experience to know that it's a problem and if you if you don't have a lot of money but you have the time to do a dietary analysis and to run through the signs and symptoms then i provide an algorithm that says when when should you use testing in order to solve a problem we can imagine like two scenarios one is If you're looking at a dietary analysis and you see that your iron intake is really low and you're looking through your signs and symptoms and iron deficiency keeps popping up in a a number of them, then it might become really obvious to you that you can just eat, you know, start eating more iron, right? Um, But alternatively, you might have issues where the testing could really make a difference in what your actionable thing would be to do. So maybe looking at dietary analysis and looking at your signs and symptoms leads you into too many different directions. Then what you can do with the cheat sheet is then use only the targeted testing that would help you resolve which direction should you take. Or sometimes it would lead you in conflicting directions. Like some of the symptoms of iron deficiency, for example, also occur in iron overload. And sometimes it's your genetics or your level of blood loss, whether it's through menstruation or occult blood loss and during exercise in your intestines or other things where you really you really don't know which one you're predisposed to and you really need to do testing to figure out whether you should be doing one or the other of two opposite interventions right but then there are other you know there are other cases where uh, someone has plenty of money at hand or they have cr- crazy good insurance that will cover anything as long as it it's gotten from LabCorp or something like that. Like, if if you have all those resources at your disposal, then the comprehensive nutritional testing really helps you. Really helps you uncover anything that might be off biochemically, even if you wouldn't suspect it, or when the symptoms are too vague. Right? Sometimes symptoms like fatigue, for example, if it can be caused by thirteen different things, a comprehensive screening really helps ferret out which one of those mm. things is most probable. And you know some people are in the case where they don't have time to do a dietary analysis. They're like, "Look, I'm busy getting cash, man." <laughs> and so um those people like maybe they only do the comprehensive nutritional screening and then if there's anything that they need to look at with their diet or collect their signs and symptoms they they, they save that for when that's going to make the difference of what they need to do. So basically with this nutritional cheat sheet what I produced is a way where you can just in five pages, figure out everything that you need to do, and then it directs you to read the rest of the 78 pages on an as-needed basis. So you might possibly, if your goal is to read as little as you can in order to get somewhere, you may well only have to read six or seven pages of it because it leads you through the algorithm of which section to go to when. Or you might be able to do it in pieces. Like you might be able to go through a few pages, decide that you need to get this, this, and t- that test. You order. You talk to your doctor. You order them. Wait till they come back. Then you go to the next set of action items that take you through another two or three pages. So, you know, some people are going to want to geek out on it and read it through and through. Certainly, if you're a healthcare practitioner and you're using it to help your patients, then you want to be familiar with all of it. Uh, But as an individual doing self-directed work on your health, then, you know, you read it through if if you really want to geek out on everything. But uh, if you really want to be efficient, you can. Uh, it's designed to allow you to go through the m- the minimum necessary to arrive at actionable conclusions.
1: Yeah, and it's just an amazing value. And Chris, you spoke about before, or, or in our email correspondence, you said that you'd be willing to give a discount for Legendary Life listeners. Absolutely. Um, so, if you want to get
0: the cheat sheet, you can go to chrismasterjohnphd.com dot com slash legendary life and then you can enter the discount code Legendary Life, all one word, all in caps, Uh, on the sales page. It will be right there, tell you what to do, and you'll be able to copy and paste it. And then you click either the Apply button, or on some screens it'll occur as an arrow. You click that, you watch the price fall from $30 to $25, and then you place your order. And as long as you do that by midnight Eastern time, that's New York time, on May 6th, Then you will be eligible for the discount. So,
1: awesome, man! Yeah, it's (laughs) it's incredible. Um, I need to sit down with it and spend a little time going through all the details uh, because it's just I bought it right before I moved, and now I'm like, it's just an incredible resource. Uh, Even listening to you talk about it, you seem so proud of it, and I see why because it must have been. A lot of work. I remember reading you went back to all the show notes of your episodes and took out all the important information, the the practical information rather, to help people make decisions based on their symptoms and and help them, you know, target their nutrition because that's what this is about. So many people, Chris, they just read a blog post or listen to a podcast. Hey, this is a good supplement. You should take it, you know, take your vitamin C or whatever whatever it is, and they end up trying it. Most people don't feel very much, but especially if you're listening right now and you have some symptoms that you're dealing with, this can help you out a lot. So uh, again, go to chrismasterjohnphd.com slash legendary life and use that code Legendary Life, one word, all capital letters, and for that discount. Uh, Chris, man, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, I know I want to have you back on already. I just, my mind is like exploding with all this new level of information on nutrition. I think a good thing to do would maybe let me go through that nutritional uh, cheat sheet and come back to you with some questions. And perhaps we can dive in more and, and get into this yeah. whole idea of personalized nutrition. What do you say? Sounds great. Sounds great. Awesome. Well, for those of you listening, thanks so much. Uh, I know you learned a lot. Make sure you check Chris out at Chris Master John PhD. And of course, check out that nutritional testing cheat sheet. Chris, thanks so much, man. I learned so much. I'm going to have to think about a lot of what you said. I'm going to have to listen to this episode again to really get all the details, probably two or three times. But thanks so much, man. It's just a pleasure speaking with someone Like you, not just that you're very knowledgeable, but you have the analytical mind that a lot of people in our space just don't have. And I appreciate you for that.
0: You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Been a blast.
1: That wraps up another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I hope you learned a lot. It was quite a bit of a long and in depth interview. You may have to listen to it one or three times more before you are able to soak up all the knowledge from Chris John. But again, make sure you go and take advantage of that offer that Chris has. That's all on him. He offered to do that. And I got to tell you, his nutritional cheat sheet is a great piece of uh, content that can help you assess deal with and overcome any nutritional issue that you have. And it's uh, a lot less expensive than hiring, Chris. Although if that's something that if you're having an issue, you should strongly consider that. Well, that wraps things up. Remember to share this episode if it resonated with you. If you found it valuable, make sure you share it. That's the highest compliment you can pay me and it helps grow the show. So please share it. And if this is your first time listening to the Legendary Life Podcast, make sure you click that subscribe button so every time one of my episodes goes live on Mondays and Wednesdays, you will be the first to know. Have an amazing week and speak to you soon.